0: Welcome to Burning Platforms, a podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology, looking at the politics of technology from around the world. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This episode comes from a live Politics in the Pub event held in Canberra on December 1 to launch the Centre's new book, The Public Square Project, Reimagining Our Digital Future. Joining me in the discussion are one of the book's contributors, Nicholas Davis, a former Innovation Lead at the World Economic Forum and Guardian Australia Political Editor, Catherine Murphy. It's great to see everyone and thanks for coming out tonight. Um, I should also say that um, after the legislation introduced into Parliament today, if there are any trolls in the room, um, we can come after you personally now. We'll chase your identity down and we'll take um, actions afterwards Um Actually, thankfully in the real world we have norms and we have rules and I'm sure everyone is just going to enter into this discussion in the spirit that's intended, which is to dig deep into what I think is the fine red wine of politics, which is the politics of technology and the way that the innovation um, that is occurring at breakneck speed is both transforming and distorting our public spaces, our democracy, and our personal connections between each other. I've been really privileged to have the opportunity to establish the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology a couple of years ago now, when Ben saw the opportunity for the Australia Institute to take a lead in one of probably the more burning political issues, but one of the least understood issues. And I've been proud to have the opportunity on behalf of the Australia Institute to put the case for sensible platform regulation on the table, but more importantly, put on the table the imperative to think about what change does to a democracy, to a society and to a community. And so often the issues seem highly technical, um, really pointy-handed, but the human impact of technology going wrong is the riots on the capital. It's the vaccine misinformation and it's climate denial. So, in a way, getting our public square right in a digital world is in many ways a superstructure for getting our democracy right. We had a chat today at the Australia Institute about all their amazing programs they're doing in energy, in democracy, in democracy broader environment. And the piece around technology sits underneath all of them. So through the lockdown, we've had a great opportunity to build that discussion going. We put on a fortnightly webinar called Burning Platforms through the the centre. We've launched a podcast. Who doesn't, Catherine? We've had the opportunity to sort of try to get our head around these issues. What I love about the the politics of tech it's a very open club. Um, everyone is working it out as we go along and none of us are too old to get our head in the game because what we do with tech is just as vital as what we do with the planet into the future. The two are inextricably linked. Um, so the idea of putting the book of essays, I just got a call out of the blue from Melbourne Uni Press saying, do you want to write a book about this stuff at the beginning of the year? And I said, I don't know enough about this stuff to write a book about it but I know some really smart people so I put the dragnet out um, I spoke to some academics some people I just met through people I met like Nick um, and we asked them just to put their reflections down on the challenges we face at the moment the book's kind of broken into three sections where we are now how we got here what government can do in the here and now but more importantly what we can imagine for the future um, so, I hope you get a chance to obviously buy the book and put it in someone's Christmas stocking, but also to think about the opportunities that this blank canvas of technological change offers it. And I guess our starting proposition is to just outsource this to big global tech corporations is not just naive, it's really, really destructive. And we've got to start imagining something better. So, on that cheery note, um, we thought we'd spend tonight, I think the format of Politics the Pub is that we have a bit of an natter and then we open it up for questions. So, no topic will be off-limit, guys. But I thought we could start with my good friend and colleague, Catherine Murphy, who's been up at the House all this week and many other weeks. Um, and I think one of the interesting parts of tech is that, on the surface, the Morrison government has engaged in this issue. At the start of the year, they um, introduced the News Media Bargaining Code, which the Centre supported. Um, It was not a normal place to be supporting the Morrison government on anything. And we get to the end of the year where they've introduced a series of propositions around online behaviour. So I guess I'm interested in you, Catherine. I know you're not a tech reporter and we're pushing you a little bit out of your comfort zone tonight, but what, what's your take on the way this government has approached technology and the power of the big tech platforms? Mm,
1: it, is, it is genuinely interesting. Um, hello. Welcome. It's nice to see so many people out and about. Um, it, yes, it is genuinely interesting that the government has, in this area, been forward-leaning, uh, certainly with the negotiation of the News Media Bargaining Code which if you've not followed this debate, the simple quick rendering of it is, in my line of work, uh, the internet destroyed our business models and uh, there was not really a fair distribution of, uh, of revenue for content and uh, what the news media bargaining code seeks to do is to get a fairer distribution or revenue stream around the sort of content that we create and the content that uh, that the platforms, Facebook, Twitter and others, make money out of, basically. So the government intervened because of concern that uh, a number of news businesses were basically borderline unviable. And, uh, look, if you were a cynical person, uh, you might say the government intervened because news corporation... Uh, was quite concerned about its future, like all of us. Look, if you're a cynic, you can say that. But in actual fact, in the implementation of uh, the code, all media companies benefited, including the one I currently work for. So that from, you know, I don't like talking much about the code because it's one of those areas where in reporting, I try and steer away from something <laughs> that that directly benefits my employers. So I I haven't really done a lot of commentary about this and I, in fact, try to stay away from this issue as far as possible, but I do think it is a net benefit for society if um, there are a number of viable media companies that represent a whole lot of different perspectives and that is, in fact, how the code has been implemented. Um, So there's that. Then we've uh, got the troll-busting um, outbreak, <laughs> which uh, I, I was on. I was with the Prime Minister when he went to the climate change summit in Glasgow and the G20 recently, and <laughs> um, in a, in and amongst other dramas, the Prime Minister was uh, attempting to persuade other G20 countries to um, sort of think about abuse and trolling online. That was sort of a if we had if we had an agenda at the G20, and we almost didn't really, but that that was the closest thing that we could have to having an agenda at the G20. So he, so the Prime Minister hasn't just woken up yesterday and locked on to this idea. The Prime Minister's been playing around with this idea for some period of time. But I think, look, it, it, it's very much a zeitgeist issue, isn't it? You know, everybody is concerned in this day and age about social media, whether their kids are, uh, you know... <laughs> being exposed to all kinds of harm in terms of bullying and, and body image and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's a real talking point issue. And at, at the moment, the Prime Minister is very keen to find a zeitgeist issue um, where he can, you know, sort of start to uh, define what the election contest will be about. So he's sort of looking for components of we will keep people safe. That's, that's sort of... And this is one component of that if we can do something, not really sure what it is online, um, we will keep people safe. So it's sort of part of, you know, you've got to think about his election kind of preparations as, as, as like stacking Tupperware. You know, it's sort of like issue on issue that kind of relates to one another. So I do think it's mostly about the government's pre-election positioning. Um, in terms of the actual ledge that... Pete says has appeared. Yes, there is an exposure draft. It's appeared today. If you have a look at The Guardian, we've got an explainer about it if you are really interested in what it does. Uh, but it's a long way off being introduced <laughs> to the parliament. The Prime Minister is basically saying, uh, you know, that he has to consult with the states, with st- with stakeholders, i.e. the tech giants and others, um, although they are pushing through uh, in order to have some legislation ready for a February sitting in the event the parliament returns but that you would have to rate as a fairly substantial if at this point so that's probably more comprehensive than you needed. that's great and you know I don't think it's any
0: secret the Guardian 50 extra reporters employed on the back of the code so say what you like about the transactional nature but it has transformed a number of media organizations um I'm just interested more generally Catherine it seems weird this Prime Minister standing up to corporate power. That's kind of not his
1: normal DNA. It's kind of working for him, is it? And how does it work for him? Well, he's not. Look, Pete, you would say that of a, a prototype Liberal Prime Minister, quote, unquote. You'd say it's pretty odd for a Liberal Prime Minister to be um, seeking conflict with a major corporate interest. It's not conventional. It's not what Liberal Prime Ministers generally do. Um, this Prime Minister is a sort of unconventional Liberal Prime Minister on a range of fronts and I don't think he's much interested in, in those sort of philosophical or ideological um, battles that some of his predecessors, you know, that have got some of those his predecessors out of bed in the morning. I just think he's really not at all interested in it. And so I think... It's sort of yeah. It's unusual in a philosophical sense, in an historical sense, but in a Morrison sense, um, not really unusual at all. I don't think it's sort of it's all about you know it's all about messaging. It's all about storytelling, and like I said, I think you know what the prime minister is desperately in need of at the moment is a zeitgeist issue, something that works for his broader election narrative. And so, if he's got to piss off Facebook, well, who cares?
0: Yeah, Nick. Um, the crowd probably doesn't know you as well as I've come to know you. So it'd be good to give a bit of a an intro about how someone that spent the last decade working at the World Economic Forum has ended up back in Canberra. and um, On while a stage you're on, with us. While you're on stage with these two gadflies. But um, I'm also interested, um, just your observations of how Australia's playing its tech politics in relation to
2: what's going on around the world. Sure. So thanks, Peter. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, yes, as Peter said, I'm actually just back in Australia as the beginning of this year after 18 years away, and I spent the most most of that time in Switzerland working with this little outfit called the World Economic Forum that brings together kind of, you know, global elites in the snow to sip champagne and uh, eat oysters and, and kind of fix markets. At least that's the narrative that often comes from the Guardian and the Australian media here—not um, to cast any aspersions—but it was a, it was a fantastic opportunity as an Australian who actually I actually had the privilege of, of being head of Europe and then uh, finishing off after five, with five years of uh, head of innovation at the World Economic Forum, um, which at its heart is a, a, basically a stakeholder organisation, a multi-stakeholder organisation trying to create better connective tissue between civil society, government, and um, and business which is why, despite the rhetoric you still see every year, um, a whole host of Australians going over there, making the long trek to, um, uh, to engage in those discussions. And Bono. Yeah, exactly. Um, the work that I was doing, though, which is where I kind of started to get exposure to, particularly what European capitals were doing on this, but then more globally, um, was I, I was looking at, at what drove innovation uh, and innovation policy um, around Europe in particular. There was this deep, and there still is this deep sense of inadequacy uh, in, in any part of the world that is not Silicon Valley, about how you create value out of your um, innovation portfolio and digital digital products. Uh, and that was the zeitgeist kind of 10, 10 years ago. Um, now it's the flip, which I think explains a little bit um, of, of why the, the current government here is kind of standing up to the big tech giants. It's the sudden realisation that um, that actually we've created a whole load of structural weaknesses and, and, and danger in our, in our societies. It's now playing out in our inability to have a reasonable conversation about medical evidence and statistics uh, during a, a global health crisis. And uh, so in that context, the last five years, I've been working on uh, building this concept of the fourth industrial revolution. So if you've heard the, the phrase, the fourth industrial revolution before, um, that's my fault. Uh, that was what I, I worked on. And it was essentially a way of trying to create a different narrative about our technology-driven future, one that wasn't just industry 4.0, so it wasn't just about robots in manufacturing, uh, nor was it about the digital revolution, about how we just need to kind of give up everything and be glued to our, our phones. But calling, like I think what good journalism does, calling on metaphors and images and historical perspectives around times where the world completely changed and completely changed in the case of the first industrial revolution, 1750 to about 1850, changed for the better on average but also created huge environmental damage and deforestation. Um, It was 50 years between the first... um, kind of uh, child slavery and child workforce uh, laws in the UK the top, between the time they were proposed in the UK parliament and the time, the time they were actually enforced. So 50 years of regulatory catch-up between 1801 and 1852 um, on something as simple as should we allow people under the age of 12 to work for more than 12 hours in a mine or in a manufacturing. And, we, and I guess the argument is here, Peter, we are going through a similar, similar revolution right now a whole series of new technologies which take digital for granted. So we've just we've gone through the digital revolution. Now we kind of now that everyone's connected and we've all got you know twice the power of the space shuttle in our pockets that we just take for granted. Uh, we are essentially creating new ways of engaging with one another and being manipulated and tortured in some senses um, to the benefit of private companies um, in ways that represent completely new, you know sets of values uh, that we don't we don't fully understand we haven't we haven't kind of fully come to grips with as a society. And so the I guess the challenge that I'm that makes me excited about being back into Australia, back in Australia right now in, in a country which is literally the it's the we are the prototyping capital of the world. We're the pilot capital of the world. If you want to pilot something for any OECD market you come to Australia because we are open to new ideas, we're um, multicultural and diverse, we're representative of so many other populations in small segments around the world, We've got you know, massively interesting migrant populations as well as indigenous populations here. Um, so if you want to pilot something, come here. And, and what I'm excited about is, in the spirit of the Public Square project, is piloting some ideas around how can we get better at our politics and public discussions around the, tech, the, the future of technology. And what most scares me to bring us back to the politics in the pub topic, what most scares me about what um, the the government and what Scott Morrison's doing right now is the the um, the way if you listen to the government on this current on this proposed um, legislation, the bill, um, you, you think it's about online trolling and bullying and harassment, but it's not. We took care of that in the Online Safety Act. That's already an act that was passed that was updated earlier this year. If you harass or bully someone, online, Julie Inman-Grant, our East Safety Commissioner, will go after you. So we've taken care of that problem. What is the actual bill about? It's about defamation. At its core, it's about people being able to go after others uh, in the courts as a result of the federal court um, decision to be able to unmask their identities and um, have them face up to those legal remedies around defamation. And what worries me about that kind of mismatch is, first of all, well, why... Why, is, why are politically we being manipulated into thinking this is about safety for kids when we've already done that, right? So what's the reason for that, that shift? That always makes me a little bit suspicious. But secondly, if it's about defamation and I look in the news about who's been threatening defamation actions on others, it's actually been politicians threatening granny groups in Queensland for saying... Oh I think you you know you've got the wrong policy platform there. and also critically media companies being absolutely sued so just just exactly and of course, you know there are a number of actions at the moment against media companies on this. so I guess which brings me to your final point, and I'll shut up and pass back to you and Catherine. when we look about how or how um, countries, how governments, whether they be local government, state um, federal or national governments around the world, are making policy at the moment, I see kind of three different groups I so think say three three big trends. And, um, and if you if you Google tech policy around the world, you'll see a lot of commentary that says uh, it's authoritarian policy making in China, it's socialist communist policy making in Europe, and it's liberal good policy making in in America and Australia and a few others in the U.S. Um, I think that's a really ideologically divisive and unhelpful distinction. I see three different categories. I see a group of companies, a gr- group of countries rather, a group of governments that are really focused on introducing legislation that tries to embody and give power to citizens by enshrining new rights into law. And I would put the EU's Digital Markets Act, which is mostly about competition, and the Digital Services Act, which is about online behaviour, in those categories of trying to essentially define and codify new rights for citizens so that they can then be protected and have actions against whoever breaches those duties, governments or businesses in particular. And obviously the target of that are these very large online platforms like Google, Facebook. There is a a whole separate group of of policymaking around the world that's going on, which is really about centralising power in governments themselves. So it's about taking uh, um, the ability um, for commercial large large companies to make decisions on behalf of people and saying, no thanks, we want government to retain the right to do that. So content moderation, you want to give a, um, a government the power to say if you don't take this piece of content down within 24 hours, we will charge you criminally, right? Which the, the Abhorrent uh, Violent um, Extremism Act, et cetera. So that's the second type of, of power. And China is doing a fair amount of that. India is also doing a lot of that. I see a huge amount of that in Australia as well, by the way. But there's a third group of com- countries that are out there. They're, they're kind of doing a bit of a mix of the two, and I call those the opportunists. And those are those are the countries that are essentially opportunistically making policy based on... Is there a good moment with the public to gather some votes, make some movement, push our agenda on? And I think Australia um, is—I would never have thought Australia would be right at the forefront of this topic the way it has been in the last two, three, five years. Um, But I don't think that that there is that coherent strategy. I haven't been around either. We're doing this because we really want to give rights to people, nor which is possibly a little bit more nefarious. We want to do this because we're here to strengthen government. I think it's much more that opportunistic pole that's going on. And I think we really need to learn from some of those patterns and strategies and investments that are happening in other parts of the world because at the moment we're going it alone and that's really dangerous.
0: That said, Nick, um, and I'm a total opportunist, so um, I shamelessly jump on the back of an opportunity to um, stick it up the big tech companies and unashamed about it. But, you know, the point that is worth making is that the um, ACCC handed down 23 recommendations to better mediate the way that digital platforms worked and the government moved on one of them, which was the one that put money into the media industry's pocket. And I, I backed it in as a first step. But what's been really interesting has been how a lot of the other initiatives on... You know, citizen data rights, um, on disinformation, on even ad tech, have been slow walked, whereas there was this urgency when it was um, driving the agenda of the media companies. And again, I was prepared to back that in, but it was opportunistic. I think, you know, do not underestimate also the degree to which the trolling laws align with the need of the media companies to fix up that high court case that shifted the... Um, liability onto media companies for posts on social media. So opportunism is, is how politics works. What I find disheartening is, despite having this beautifully laid out master plan to regulate the platforms, it kind of lacks the urgency. And I know that politics is hard to create moments, Catherine, but, you know, to what extent are the rest of that, you know, the pri- there was a privacy paper that handed out it probably got a couple of minutes coverage compared to news media bargaining like is there a thirst do you think i know i know i know that the role that the gallery places is a bit of a call and response between politicians and the public but is there is there room to work there
1: by room to work do you mean is there a strategy To, to
0: push a broader agenda yeah
1: oh well look i hope so because there's some very serious issues uh I mean, I agree broadly with the diagnostics here, and I think it's true that, um, in part, the uh, the troll busting legislation uh, also contains a fix for media companies on the Vola decision. Which again, I'd just encourage you to have a look at look at have a look at the Guardian. There's a good explainer if all of this is double dutch. So th- that's true. Um, and I uh, look. I do think abuse. You know, as as somebody who cops a shed load of it, um, is, is a big issue. Uh, and I think it is a big issue for a lot of people. Um, I don't uh, think it's the most important issue. Uh, I think from where I sit in, in the democracy, misinformation and disinformation is a much bigger problem uh, because that is a slide into uh, a parallel universe where um, facts and evidence uh, don't inform debates. And uh, I think the whole business model of the platforms, the algorithmic business business model that heightens conflict, uh, sensationalism, conspiracy theories uh, in order to attract engagement eyeballs and sharing is corrosive to democracy. I think it's a really huge problem. I don't think there's an easy fix to that problem, which is why we haven't seen the opportunistic burst into the marketplace with a fix. But, and I'm not, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not downplaying people's experiences with abuse because some of it is genuinely terrible. You wouldn't believe some of it. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are very upset by that. Also, I think one of the just, uh, while I absolutely agree with the diagnostic, I think it is opportunistic and, and th- there is no strategy here. There is no holistic strategy, which is actually what we need. Um, and I totally agree that this is, a, you know, a defamation um, <laughs> advance in a troll mask. I think one of the biggest advocates uh, actually for this in the government is a woman called Anne Webster, who is a nationals uh, parliamentarian from regional uh, New South Wales. And uh, funnily enough, she's been trying to convince Paul Fletcher, the communications minister, to do this for the best part of two years and and until recently was told by Fletcher to nick off. But she had a terrible experience, an absolutely searing and terrible experience where uh, a, an and an online figure, um, basically accused uh, her husband and members of their extended family of being a pedophile. And she lives in a small town in regional New South Wales. Uh, The people involved in this action had some linkages with some movements that are obsessed with these issues. Uh, You know, the, the abuse was coming from an account that was offshore, you know, it's not like being called a paedophile in Sydney, where you can walk around and three million people don't know who you are. In a small country town, you walk around, everybody knows who you are. And a lot of this uh, uh, this campaigning was uh, boosted and directed in, in geolocated. So, um, I'm just I'm just saying. Uh, that it is it's it is this, but it's a little more complex than that. It can be
0: opportunistic that. and genuine at the same and time. And genuine
1: at the same time, which is the elixir in politics mm. is opportunism overlaid with sufficient truth to believe what you're saying, mm. um, if you're very cynical. Uh, but, no, I'm just saying, look, that there, there are issues there. Um, mm. I don't know whether this proposal will fix them. And, like I said a minute ago, I, I do not think that this is the biggest problem that that democratic countries face, even though the toxic environment of social media where I spend a lot of my time is uh, you know corrosive to people's mental health and sometimes to their reputations. Um, we're going to go to questions in just a minute,
0: but can, can I pitch my big idea first and see what people think, both the panellists and the room? So the, the big idea in this book is that we can't actually fix Facebook and we can't fix the model of surveillance capitalism and we're naive if we think we can run our public debates and our civic spaces on the back of it. I'm, I'm horrified that more and more government departments and the public broadcaster outsource their community to a, an engine which is based on the extraction and repurposing of user data to make money in a way that divides people and riles them up.
2: So, And just to be clear on that, Peter, what you're saying is government departments are using Facebook to run their community discussions.
0: Yeah. Um, My wife got invited to a community consult the other day. I'm doing a piece on it tomorrow. And the only way to register was via Facebook. Like, you know, you are totally giving in. So my, my straw man is that we need something between the private sector that needs to make money out of it and a government like China or Russia And it feels to me a little bit like the Rethian principles that underpinned the ABC 90 years ago when wireless technology was failing because of market failure. So my straw man is we've got to reimagine public broadcasting as a civic network where you build community, you encourage people to create, you set rules and norms, you build algorithms based on different objectives to making money, objectives to embrace difference, encourage civility, build the public square in its rethian principles, which really goes back to the, the tradition of the Agora. Um, I know Nick might jump in on this in a sec, but it, I, I know it sounds really idealistic. But we've got ABC that's in the middle of this culture war where it's all about the content, but we've lost track of what the purpose was, which was to deal with market failure in technology. And it just seems to me that reimagine the ABC as this space where, yes, the ABC could produce content, but why couldn't local producers as well, um, individuals, The Guardian, even Murdoch if he's doing real journalism, and just totally turn the whole thing on its head? Because at the moment we're we're going down this spiral where every year that we keep ceding control to Facebook and there was this moment when they withdrew news during the negotiations, the News Bargaining Code, when it was like, well, maybe they'll get out of Australia, but no, they were back in no time and we became more and more reliant on it. So that's my straw, man. What do you reckon, Nick?
2: Yeah, it was, it's interesting because when, when Facebook announced that their, their name change to the Metaverse, it, it made me at one time kind of horrified because I don't know if you know, the, the idea of the Metaverse is, you know, your entire being or all your, your virtual experiences become kind of subsumed into that platform. But I was I was thinking this, this, this interesting change because... When I started working on these topics uh, in around 20, 2009 2010, it was the time that the Obama administration was really pushing this digital democracy project, where they were funding activists in Iran and China and others on the idea that access to social media, unfettered access to information, on the internet was going to flip these countries. You know, remember the promise of the Arab Spring, Arab Spring yeah. the, and you know the, the the fact that you know these author, these authoritarian governments are turning off the internet, but you're finding ways to come around. Democracy's alive. It's going to. And, and now, kind of ten, a decade later, or you know, eight years later, in some cases, um, we're looking at it, going, "Well, this is this is the same exactly the same access and and growth in access to the information is killing democracy, right? Is, is undermining, as we kind of laid out in the intro here. And um, I think the mistake comes from thinking that democracy is aided by participation, and I think that's a really simplistic notion of of democracy. And I happen to work with a a classicist, uh, um, a, a guy called uh, Dr. Tom Philbeck, and he reminded me recently that in, in early Athens, about 500, 600 BC, um, they had this problem of bringing together all these diverse tribes that were living, in, that formed a citizenry of, of of Athens and making decisions collectively. And so they, they did three really interesting things which were not about mass participation, because it wasn't mass particip- participation. It was essentially... Elite landowning men, right? That was the that was the citizenry in that time. But still, it was a div- really diverse group, different languages, different cultures, different activities. And the three things were they brought them together in a public space and what they called the agora, and they made them do things together. So they created like collective co- festivals and and moments. They, it was it was activity based, like a like a community hall, right, and a marketplace. The second thing they did was they created um, a common rule of law. So they had to create a bit of a common language to um, ascribe these norms and languages, which is what the Morrison government and others around the world are trying to do with tech regulation today create some better norms. Whether those norms are, then the power goes to the government or the people, as I said, is a bit, that's the tricky trade off. But the third thing they did was, for the first time, they created a, a, a space, that was voting records, people who were born, died when they entered the, the, the city when they left was all recorded because the assumption was that by having public collective ownership of the information about who was in the city and what we, you were doing was uh, enabled people to understand each other and make decisions and it got me thinking well actually I think the, the the metaverse this kind of immersive virtual reality in twenty years time right it'll be it'll be there like we're going to be we'll all be in the metaverse like I, I really believe anyone that's had a virtual reality headset on recently it is pretty incredible right so we are going down that route already it's the technology is is coming it maybe in 5 years we'll be all in the metaverse but the the problem is we just don't want facebook to be running it because facebook's algorithm is going to be separating us into separate rooms the data we're not going to own any of it whatsoever and unfortunately we don't own the norms the codes the laws it's going to be decided by someone else so how can we as australians be and how can our politics be on the forefront of reclaiming that public space, of collectively deciding on these laws in a, perhaps a little bit more of a strategic sense, I would argue. And thirdly, how do we own our bloody data? That's the big problem that I've got.
1: What do you reckon, Catherine? I think that was beautifully. Beautiful. Yeah. It's it's a great story. A, so. ABC
0: tried Second Life for a while there, so they've been in the yeah, metaverse. For well, a moment.
1: well, we're all. Uh, but, but you're you're speaking about the public broadcaster as as you know a publicly owned space, which is an important concept. I was saying to these guys before we sat up here and started yapping, um, I had to refresh my memory on the metaverse because I remember the hoverboard uh, but not much else because I've had my head full of other things. Uh, so I read an extended interview before we came today with Mark Zuckerberg about the, uh, about the metaverse. And, again, if you want to bring yourself up to speed, just have a look for it. You'll find it online easily. He did a quite extended conversation with The Verge about his concept for the metaverse. Um, obviously um, the platforms are not very popular in a number of democracies at this point in time they're facing a sort of pincer movement on regulation either well thought through or made up on the fly um, Zuckerberg's pitch was that the metaverse would not be dominated by any one company, like try and constrain your chuckles if you may um, would not be dominated by any one country, one company, it would involve a number of of companies uh, and fully, it would be fully interoperable. Now, again, anybody with a device, an Apple device and a and a and a um, Samsung device, will know how ridiculous that is uh, in terms of interoperability. <laughs> Nothing works with anything else, right? So the whole environment would have to be interoperable. And also, this this concept. He was asked by the reporter at the Verge, so uh, will there be public space uh, in in the metaverse? Um, you know, will we have a government civic square? Will we have a publicly owned park? You know, what what actually will, will it look like? Or will it all be sort of some dystopian corporate billboard, <laughs> you know, of various types? Uh, and Zuckerberg said, well, of course, there should be publicly owned space, of course. Um, and, and that absolutely, like, you know, I, I went from chuckling quietly to laughing out loud at that point. Um, but it is very important. I don't know if Pete's um, solution is is the perfect one because I'm I'm you know I'm ignorant basically on these matters. Um, but uh, it seems a reasonable starting point. But this whole concept, if there is, if we are to sort of evolve into this you know place where we will have um, you know a proportion of life IRL in real life here, uh, and we all have another proportion of our lives in some sort of augmented halfway house between these two states. Like the metaverse, if we were sitting up here, you know, the metaverse would be you guys are all at home with your VR. Like headsets. on Zoom. Yeah. Well it would like Zoom, but except you would feel like you were here. Yeah. You would be surrounded by avatars. If you look at the people sitting next to you, you would be surrounded by avatars we're having resp- human-like responses to what's happening. Um, you know, we the pandemic has shown us that we're not far away from that now, but there is an extra step in order to get to the to the metaverse space where Zuckerberg is is thinking about taking tech or where tech will take us. And I think we do need to think about all of these things, and this is why your point about how you codify the space, going back to ancient Greece, is such a beautiful organising thought. Like, you know, who owns the data? Um, What are the rules and norms? Who sets them? Who enforces them? Uh, Who owns the spaces? And, you know, is there diversity in those spaces? Are there common spaces or is it just some sort of corporate hellscape? That none of us will want to be anywhere near. Anyway, it's fascinating.
0: You know, the thing about the internet is it was built by engineers and I, I didn't really get engineering for a long time because, you know, I was a media politics guy and I remember having a beer one afternoon with a couple of neighbours who were engineers saying, what do you guys actually do? And I thought they all built bridges, but one of them said they designed financial systems. No one said he designed logist- logistical chains. And that's sort of the penny dropped that engineers designed systems and the internet is an expression of design principles. And if your design principles are how do we make money out of civic engagement, you're going to build a certain thing. Whereas if it is how do we create a more cohesive society that builds friction so that everyone isn't just reinforced as just because you are a member of the Australia Institute, that's not the only reality that is coming into your algorithmic newsfeed. That's a good thing. Um, there's a great chapter in the book by Robert Elliott Smith, who's an AI engineer um, who grew up in Alabama um, during busing. And it's, it's just that notion that there is f- value in friction and you've got to build friction into systems. And if you don't, the systems become brittle. And the the um, micro-targeting, um, the, the genius of micro-targeting actually creates really brittle systems that break, right? I think it's time for questions. Is it?
1: Um, my thought is about um, the trolls. A number of politicians, I believe, have basically been trolling people using alternate. What are the implications for them?
0: That'd be a Catherine.
1: I I don't know that a lot of politicians would be would be. (laughs) I mean, there certainly are some. Rather celebrated examples of that, um, but as a mainstream activity, uh, look, you know, most of them do have a day job. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what's the implications for them? Well, uh, we we need to see we need to see the the legislation in detail, and we need to understand uh, all of those all of those issues. I don't think yet. Well, I mean, look, the mm. government could attempt to pass some legislation that exempted politicians as a class perhaps I mean they have a they have the you know the biggest defamation arena in the country through privilege so that'd be funny wouldn't it um but I don't think that that would go down very well in the harsh light of day um so call me naive um but I think that would be idiotic and it would be called out in about Two and a half nanoseconds. So, um, but it's it's a reasonable point you make. But again, I just <laughs> not I, the, most parliamentarians do not have time to be setting up. <laughs> sorry to laugh. It's just so ridiculous. Setting up, you know, kind of fake fake identities to either praise themselves. Face, you know, famously. as Well Angus done, Taylor Angus. Did. Well, well done, <laughs> Angus. Um, <laughs> or, you know, Andrew Lamming. Or, That's the
0: opposite of trolling, really, isn't or, it? Or, or,
1: or Mandy Jane, which we were reminded of beautifully yesterday, um, Amanda Stoker's um, alternate online present. Anyway, re- be assured that they're, they're sort of the exception rather than the rule. Do you know the other thing, though? I reckon um, it's
0: it's a mistake to think that your average troll is just some guy in his undies late at night in front of his computer. There are There is industrial-scale orchestrated mm-hmm. fake bots. yes. Um, that are set up um, to spread disinformation, both internationally but here in Australia. Our friends at QUT do a lot of monitoring of tweets that move at breakneck speed, like the chain that you you can just tell they're automated. Um, And so a lot of the early conspiracy theories around COVID, the Bill Gates theory, was totally pushed out by um, orchestrated bot farms, yeah?
1: Can I please direct this question to Catherine? Uh, can you please explain, under the media bargaining code, how does the revenue-sharing model work? Who gets what money? And where does it come from? And then who gets to decide, to decide who's in the club?
0: The issue is we don't know, not just how much money... But what the deals with on what the platforms had to do for Google and Facebook for that money? Oh, so no,
1: no, we know. A we li- do know that no, you've got to make no, it nice no, for them. No, no, no. We know a little bit about that. Um, the, uh, you know, and I presume uh, the jobs that have been created across the industry are have similar characteristics. Uh, you know, the jobs uh, the jobs are for designated activities and. Uh, and so you know it's not it's not just a wad of money where media companies can go to lunch with it's there are a number of positions that that uh, perform certain functions or audiovisual you know anyway there's there's a whole bunch of categorizations for those uh, for those jobs but yeah i don't know the quantum I'm, I'm being completely honest. I don't know the quantum in my own organisation. Yeah.
0: Let's not go down that wormhole, totally. We've got one more question, but we can continue that discussion at the bar. Last question, if anyone's got one. Um, this right? man's. But you yes. can do it at the bar yes. for sure. Will? No, that we'll...
1: no, no, we should. Oh well,
0: two more questions, quick ones though. We'll be ready. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay,
2: thank you very much.
3: Uh, quick, quick comment. Uh, what I've heard so far. Uh, thank you very much. All the comments so far is that uh, technology is a pinata for a range of other uh, social ills, whether it's the outsourcing of government functions to Facebook, the issue is not the platform. It's a small part of a much broader function of outsourcing. And the the APS is now the public service. It's incapable of delivering services to the public. It outsources everything, including to Facebook. Uh, Loads of nasty things spread online, and people organise lots of stupid things like QAnon conspiracies to raid the capital. But since antiquity, people have been falling for religion, And in our society now, we normalize religion. We give it tax breaks. And whether we live in a society where religion is normal and resources are diverted to a private school system and we're under-resourcing public schools, then we're getting close to the problem of the issue is not the bots. The issue is not the disinformation. The issue is that we believe it. And it's our critical thinking that's the most important thing and not the means by which that message is delivered. That's the comment. Oh, so exactly. I, I disagree yeah. with a lot yeah, of yeah,
0: what yeah, you said. Yeah, that's great. Nick, Nick's first line in his essay kind of sums that up, doesn't it? Oh,
2: the fact that um, technology policy today is overly obsessed with technology. And I yeah. think you're right. Like, we, There's a lot of deeper issues there uh, that we need to be tackling with. The other aspect of this is now technology policy becomes everything policy, right, because it represents all those outsourcing elements that you mentioned.
0: But I'd push back that it's not just a benign relationship. Like, the design of these platforms have implications as well, but then we, then it's on us how we use them. I totally Absolutely. Surveillance
3: that. capitalism is a thing. However, our susceptibility to it is a community choice and yeah, yeah. so we can do better. But You're the better question choice. is, is, is uh, public-private key cryptography. Oh. This is the, the thing that can sort of get, yeah. achieve that sort of public space our ability to have our data distributed amongst us, not withheld by government and sort of Mm -hmm. sorted and filtered and amalgamated, but cryptography is both perceived to be a bad thing by government because it allows anonymity, but it's actually a good thing because it allows anonymity and privacy. And uh, I'll be looking forward to a bit more of a discussion perhaps about that. Yeah, yeah. I'd love
2: to take that forward at the bottom. All
0: right. We'll give our friend the last question and And then, then...
3: Yeah, I was just curious if you saw any downside to eliminating anonymous accounts... Why wouldn't we just require everybody to at least be traceable by Facebook or Twitter? That would relieve them presumably of the stress of dealing with defamation because then they just say, well, it was this guy. And then wouldn't that reintroduce a bit more civility in the discussion?
1: Look, uh, reflexively, I I have an enormous amount of sympathy with that as a person who has to participate in the public square, who is visible, who is identifiable, uh, uh, who is accountable, who is responsible. It irritates me that, <laughs> that, that those rules don't apply to everyone. But there are genuinely uh, good, valid reasons sometimes why uh, people seek a cloak of anonymity in order to participate in public conversation or to, uh, to share information that would obviously breach, uh, you know, share information in the public interest, I should say, that would otherwise breach their employment contracts, for example. There is a case for it. Um, but I, I absolutely understand where you're coming from.
0: You design it into the system.
1: Yeah, no. Well, people believe it or not, still do that old school. Um, but uh, but no, they, look, they, there's a case. There's a case. Um, I do think you know, look, you've got to have a hundred points of ID for everything else that you do in your entire existence. At one level, you think, well, why not? What is what is the case for if, if this is the norm for you know registration for any sort of service or any sort of participation? I mean, we all we all checked in tonight. Um, you know why why not but uh, i accept that there are valid exceptions to this rule and uh, and that is you get into complex policy making territory when you hit the exceptions just a quick round up nick
2: i think um the three reasons why it's important for us to be talking about these issues number one because we want to reap all the benefits of technology like there is just so much so much great stuff happening. I'm seeing so much in biomedical research. Hopefully, thanks to technology, we will all be here in 30 years in person, not in the metaverse, right? Because (laughs) the the breakthroughs of digital medicine these days, incredible. So let's let's get onto it because we want to um, reap the benefits. Secondly, there's a distributional problem around the world with technology and the benefits from it. Um, Industrial revolutions are not evenly distributed in time or space. So let's figure out a way to make sure that as many people as possible get to do it. But the the third issue is we... We do know that along the way, in in any revolution, we create a whole host of uh, issues, externalities, harms uh, around. We exclude people. We create environmental damage. We put people literally into slavery. We manipulate people. happens all the time. It's going to happen exponentially bigger and at scale if we don't get some of these issues right. Let's focus on the positive, but let's not let it kind of, you know, go out and ruin a lot of people's lives along the way if we could have done the right steps uh, policy-wise. And let's take responsibility. I think someone said it before. Let's take responsibility ourselves because, you know, this is all of us in the room uh, have the ability also to act better, do less trolling. I've got my eye on all of you.
0: All further questions at the bar where Michael Cooney's about to um, shout everyone in the room.
1: Excellent. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. A big round of applause for our panel this evening.
0: That was Burning Platforms, and this is the final podcast for 2020. Have a great Christmas and grab a copy of the Public Square Project to slip into a Christmas stocking or two. We'll be back in 2022 to shine a torch on the way big tech and government are shaping our lives. You can access previous editions at our website, Technology.org.au, where you can also subscribe to TechCheck our summary of the latest news and ideas. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in the new year.